before we dig into this glorious meal, I thought it might be nice to go around and each of us say something we're thankful for. Genevieve, you first. La pire de l'enfer est tout autour de moi. A few weeks ago, I got into a van with a strange old man, and it was the best decision I ever made. <laughs> I'm grateful for Jocelyn. I was only trying to help. I treated him like crap. I'm thankful for mother and father for always pushing me and demanding perfection. And I refuse to share any details about my personal life. I'm thankful for the dream of Harwood Fritz Merrill. I'm thankful for the road. I'm thankful for something that my dad told me when he taught me how to surf. He said, follow your eyes. I'm thankful I had a pool growing up. I like to swim. And I'm thankful for the best dumplings in Guadalajara. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Pod 49, the fan conversation show about AMC's Lodge 49. We've got the OG crew, the regulars, back at the Lodge today. Jim, you're back from your gallivant. How are you? I feel like a million bucks, or a million Bitcoin, maybe. A million Bitcoin. So about 25 bucks at this point. How many, how many um, orbits is that? <laughs> <laughs> and Bart, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. All right, well, we are here gathered around the round table to discuss what is the penultimate episode of season two. And what is it? It's the, who's got the title right at there? For my, my limited high school French, Le Creve Impossible. All right, there we go. Uh, yes, and let's just jump right to it. We've all got them. You've got them. We're sharing them. Hot takes. Jim, we'll give you the first one since you're... Back in the fold, what is your hot take about episode nine? So my hot take about episode nine is the same as what my hot take would have been for episode seven, which I tried to record and send you guys from Germany, but it didn't quite work out. And that is that this show can make me cry. Um, I got choked up in that episode when Dud was giving Ernie the speech about how never nothing's ever been the same since his dad died. And then Ernie gives the speech about his daughter and saying his daughter's name. In this episode, it was the moment in the pool when Dud is swimming. He sees a little girl. I'm like, oh, that's just some girl in the pool. And then this kid who very obviously looks like a young Dud swims up. And I'm like, oh, it's a memory of him and Liz. And then it's actually Liz and she's there and then they're reunited. And I got choked up and, and got emotional, getting like emotional talking about it again. <laughs> so that was sort of like, you know, usually the show makes me laugh a lot and it makes me think. And like, but these recent moments of just like, ah, oh, really hit me, really hit me in the gut. Yes, it has. It has that power to do that. I agree. All right, Bart. My hot take um, is about this episode that this was unlike a lot of the episodes leading up to it. I guess, it, it, you know, as the penultimate episode, it was a lot of fun and payoff and it felt like we were on vacation watching it, sort of like the way the characters were on vacation. Um, I think a lot of times the show has a lot, like Jim's saying, there's a lot of like deep, heavy moments that are very rich. And then there's also, um, you know, there's a lot of the mysteries. We've been getting into that a lot this season. And um, you kind of got to like, it. you know, you pay attention and you're looking for the little Easter eggs and stuff like that. And this one was much more of a sit back, relax and enjoy it. 
And then, like, a lot of the things I think were answered in this episode as well, you know, you could just kind of let it happen instead of, like, thinking about it too much. Yeah, it was just basically just fun. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more later on in the episode. My hot take, I mean, leading up to this, so maybe it's a it's a, it's a a uh, low and slow hot take, but that's going to come in hot now, is I am officially ride or die with Scott. And the redemption arc of Scott over two episodes and then <laughs> Scott in this episode <laughs> is amazing. Wait, you keep doubling what? down with Scott saying that they're going to be together, though, right? Isn't that no, no, I, yeah, yeah, I lost on that one. I'm calling, I'm calling that off. Oh, oh, all right. It's a new... Uh, no, no, I'm, no, I'm right. I was Scott. Yeah. Just as Scott as a character. Like the oh, redemption okay. of Scott. Oh, okay, okay. Whatever with Connie, right? I mean, I love Connie, but not that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that we go, you know, we get this fake setup of Scott as the bad guy. Sure, he was doing some un- some questionable things, but from the moment he decides to go to Mexico and then the him and Blaze making up and that the only one that's still carrying the grudge against against him is as is Giamatti who like didn't get the memo that Scott's a cool guy now and is just continually <laughs> riding him for things that are totally not Scott's fault to the point where the other characters are like man take it easy on Scott already even Blaze um, defends Scott to him yeah totally or tries or whatever yeah right and then you see Genevieve being so attracted to Scott and you sort of can't help seeing him through her eyes like oh yeah he is a hot guy he's like He's a handsome, totally big dude, like, and like, yeah, who wouldn't be attracted caring. to him? Yeah, you can do the, you can do the, you can do wrong things out of the right motivate, right motivations. And so, I just think the the rehab of Scott, and then this episode, and he seems like I don't mean this in a physical way, but emo- he seems like emotionally seventy five pounds lighter. You know, he's like laughing, he's like part of the crew. So, like, Scott got his duende back by episode nine of season two, and and I just I am tickled by that storyline. He's about to get it all the way back when he gets shot in the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, I always get punished. I always get punished for bad things. <laughs> yeah. Well, now he's kind of upsetting the Muse relationship, I, I think, somehow. Even though there isn't a sexual bond, it's almost like Giamatti somehow, you know, subconsciously knows that there's like a, a, a threat to the Muse's uh, interests, I suppose. And maybe that's why he's kind of constantly picking on him and then (laughs) accidentally shoots him. But then now that Giamatti has had sex again, or Lamar. He can't uh, be jealous of his muse. The muse thing doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I I think so. But I, yeah, that's why I think it's almost just sort of, it's like uh, an extension of him as the writer is protecting the the muse somehow by like trying to make her, make Scott look less in the muse's eyes. Yeah. So that, that's my hot take. Bart is our new uh, reporter. Bart, give us, give us a little bit of the rundown on some of the people that made this episode happen. Uh, Well, we've got single writing credit for Andy Ciara and a single directing credit for Jake Schreier. Yeah. I think Jake has directed, if I'm not mistaken, five episodes of this season too, and will direct next week's finale. Uh, I got the music rundown again. We were sort of recording too early to get some of this, but we get the Westway Studio Orchestra with Mambo uh, Magnifico, and that's basically when they arrive at the hotel. That's the kind of, like, poolside vibe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then, you know, one of the official Lodge 49 house bands, the Sound Carriers, Time Will Come, and that is the the swimming pool, Dud-Liz reunited swimming pool scene. OCs are also used to be known as the OCs, 
uh, with animated violence. That's the dumpling battle. And basically any time that Thomas Patterson needs a grungy garage stomper, uh, he looks to uh, the OCs. That was so perfect in that scene. The, the dumpling war was was uh, incredible. Yeah. No, I just love the dumpling war. Um, those kinds of battles will always always remind me of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when uh, she outdrinks the big burly um, guy from wherever they are, Tibet, I think, some huge Tibetan yeah. guy just kind of keels over on the table. I, I, I don't know. I love that scene, the bar, the drinking. I'm sure we're going to get into the dumplings a little bit later, but that, that was one of the things that I sort of immediately thought about. Then Susie Kane, who's actually the actress who plays the muse, she actually did record uh, the French language version of The Impossible Dream from the Man of La Mancha soundtrack uh, Broadway show. Of course, Man of La Mancha is about Don Quixote. It's the Broadway version of Don Quixote, so again, following a theme and reference. And you'll notice the mariachi band version of the theme music this week was a nice little touch. Yes, love that. Yeah, I loved it. Another sound carrier's track for the uh, chase scene. We'll talk about that a little later. That was the Seven Seal, which Bart sleuthed out. It was a cover of a Scott Walker song. We believe we're about three-quarters confident about that. And then Lucille Furs with their song Paint You Phosphorine Blue, and that is the uh, dud and Ernie landing on the beach. So we had, I think it's seven total songs original songs used this week so um a really great selection of regular favorites and new discoveries so that's the work of thomas patterson this week we're trying out you know we're never going to settle on one we've experimented with different ways to do the rundown it's actually been sort of fun it's one of our reoccurring bits so this week especially with so much of the plot kind of syncing up we figured we would each pick a scene or a cluster of scenes um, that we really found that we loved or that advanced the plot forward a good amount and uh, go from there. So I believe, Jim, you've got our first uh, plot scene cluster. So all the characters find themselves in Mexico. Uh, we've got the scene I already mentioned with Dud and Liz in the pool. I believe before that is when they assign out the um, rooms and who's staying with whom. And that was kind of funny because it's already clear that Genevieve the Muse is attracted to Scott. And he's like, no, I can't do it. No, like, I can't stay in the same room as her. I'm a married man. Um, everyone else is just kind of like, whatever, we'll take our assignments. And once we realize that um, Liz and Janet and Tarquin are in the hotel as well, it has this feel of some kind of madcap 70s movie where there's like 20 different big stars that have been shoved into the same film. Um, to have just ridiculous adventures. One thing I wanted to call out, just because it echoed a previous podcast episode of ours, was this moment before we realized everyone was in the same place, when Liz comes back to the hotel room with Janet, and she's talking about how she went to a cathedral and it was really beautiful. Janet says, I didn't know you were religious. Liz says, I'm not, but I grew up Catholic and I'm cursed with a sense of grandeur. And (laughs) that reminded me of me and Bart talking about our Catholic upbringing and talking about whichever episode of Lodge 49 it was. I also wrote down that line, yeah. Yeah, that certain certain religious echoes for us. I have to say what I love about that 
that the, the, that scene, but right before that is, and we get this with a couple characters. So this is like Liz's moment to just be so excited to be on vacation. You know, she's got that funny tor- tourist Mexican purse that she bought. You know, she's like, apparently I'm a person who stroll. I, you know, I love strolling. <laughs> Strolling's great. I strolled here. <laughs> so just to see her like, it, you know, the, the joy of tourism and then the hot stone massage. <laughs> yeah, Tarquin, the Tarquin goes like along with it. He's lambasting her, and then he's like, yeah, yeah, give me yeah, one too. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that that's so enjoyable is just how the power dynamic is so reversed with Liz, where Liz is in charge of Janet. Like, Janet is unmoored and doesn't know what the hell she's doing and is scared, and Liz is just like, I'm chill, and I'm doing whatever, and you got to deal with it. Well, Janet um, is literally running from the law, so she's yeah, got to be, yeah. you know, shitting herself, so... And Liz right. is in the catbird seat knowing that she has, yeah. you know, she just has to make sure she protects herself that she didn't get uh, body double switched. And, uh, yeah, she's in the clear. So she can just, yeah, she's kind of, you know, she, she seems to be enjoying it on multiple levels. Not yeah. just the strolling in the park, but also, you know, the fact that she's not in trouble like Janet is. Right. And that, yeah, so when I, one of the episodes I missed that you guys did was when, she got the box that had her listed as the CFO. And as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, shit, Janet's trying to set her up. Because when you're the chief financial officer, you're the one even more so than the CEO who's supposed to make sure the books are being kept correctly. So that's I'm like, oh, shit, she's trying to set her up. But when you guys interviewed Olivia Sandoval, she mentioned that she had used Elizabeth Holmes as somewhat of an influence or a reference the the Theranos documentaries. I got really into the like podcast that came out about that and the documentary and just like looking up stories about her, like just a fascinating, weird character. And again, that, that came back a little bit in when in this episode when uh, Janet says, you know, Liz is like, this was never going to work. And Janet says, I went to Stanford. I can see angles and strategies that you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Which was so, it's this whole thing of like, somehow by going to Stanford, you're, you're imbued with this like magical business tech sense of like, you can run the world. Then we've got, you know, everyone together. Daphne knows where the, uh, where the scrolls are going to be in this auction, or they assume they're going to be in this bowling bag. And, you know, Lamar, Paul Giamatti says, you know, it's going to be this auction. Here's, you know, some of the people who are going to show up are spies, oligarchs, Men, men with eye patches. Yeah. <laughs> the and then there is, there is a, with eye, a man with an eye patch, indeed. And we don't end up finding out too much about him, but... It's not Tommy Lee happens. Jones, right? I tried to look it up. It does no. look a lot no. like <laughs> special guest I appearance. thought maybe it was Robert Wagner yeah. right when I, the first time I saw it. But yeah, I, I don't, I'm sure the person's done stuff, but it wasn't... They did a great job of like making him look like it could be like 10 different character actors. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, to me, I was like, oh, he had a little bit of a feel of, like, that, was it Dos Equis? Or yeah, who's of the guy? The, the coolest man, man in the world. world. Something man, man in the world. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And, like, I was kind of like, oh, it's too bad Ricardo Montalban isn't still alive and he could play some role in this, you know? <laughs> Good call. <laughs> that would be fitting. All right, Bart, you highlight a couple plot points for us in towards the middle of the episode. Yeah, well, I think we got to start with the uh, dumpling eating contest, the bet between uh, Lamar and who he wanted to be his muse, Liz, where he brags that he can eat 40 dumplings or that he has. He has the record, which is set at 40. Liz, of course, mocks this 
And um, then he takes offense to that, obviously, and then they get into it. Dud tries to warn him against this, saying, you got to understand, she is like some sort of magical, disgusting horse. (laughs) (laughs) In the most complimentary way. And uh, so, and of course, they get it on, and they're they're going, you know, dumpling for dumpling. Um, actually, quite quite gross. I have to hand it to uh, Lamar or G- Giamatti playing Lamar. Um, I was quite grossed out when he was really giving it his all and kind of getting shoving those things in his mouth and all the spittle that was sort of coming out. Well, although Ernie's the big winner, really, right? Because he takes the thousand dollar bet from Janet, and she's you see yeah. him or Tarquin settling up with him seems like at least she does have that money on her at that moment. Um, but of course, uh, El, El Marvin Metz only has $3 in his wallet, which turns out to be more than what Liz has. Um, and Dud is now, it seems like Dud is starting to kind of figure out that something is amiss with El Marvin Metz. Uh, how is this yeah. guy not have enough money? To, you know, that's the only cash he has in his pocket, basically. And then <clears throat> there's a lot going on with the everybody hanging out at the hotel. Of course, the biggest scene, I think, it, leading up to the main part I'm going to get to is um, Ernie figuring out a way to get into his mariachi. It's, it's great to see him sort of embrace El Confidente's paintings, finally. Um, I thought that was a sweet way to like work it in. And, of course, this now fulfills all those prophetic paintings that he drew. And, of course, Clara and Lamar uh, get it on in the phone booth, leading to a the uh, 10-year orgasm that everybody hears. It's very, <laughs> very impressive, uh, very funny. Of course, oh, and Anil shows up, and he's trying to convince Connie that uh, Clara's a little bit, something's off, something's wrong, and he's got to bring her back to Lodge 1. Um, but, of course, they plot in a very sort of scheme way that was uh, sort of, it felt like a Three's Company kind of sight gag the way he turns to order a room service and she has this like perfect opportunity to clonk him on the back of the head with a big bottle of Chianti or something. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's tequila. Um, but uh, I think it was a Mara- like a maraca, right? Or like a, you know? No, it was like a vase. I think it was like a heavy. A vase or something. It's got a real round fat No, it was bottom. a vase. Yeah. And it had like a, a thin neck. It looks like those Chianti bottles that are like paperweights almost. But anyway, it was like okay. that kind of a thing. And she just clonks him over the head with it. And a nice little scene in there too when she says, do you think I'm crazy? And she, of course, gets back up from her, uh, her I guess, best friend or whatever. And she says, no. And so that's, you know, when they sort of, I think, decide they, together that they're, they're going to resist Anil making her come back. And then we get to what is... Probably the highlight of the episode, I think, really, which is the bidding um, that uh, Paul F. Tompkins with a great, great um, role as Mr. Farrell Higgins. And I kind of wondered if he I, I, did he did, did they let him come up with that name? That sounds like something he would sort of make up. But it's hard to tell because the writing is so good and uh, they're so funny that it could go either way. I think it was definitely written for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes that, that makes a lot of sense. But he was perfect, yeah, he was perfect for it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was great. Um, yeah, Chris and I both noticed that he was on Twitter, he was kind of saying that, oh, what a great show. And we were like, oh, that's great, you know. He, I didn't know, we obviously know Pat Oswalt's a fan, but we didn't know that he was. <clears throat> and then, um, of course, he's on the next episode, and so it made a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Um, 
There's a great he he tweeted out a great thread that you can find on his Twitter feed or on the Pod Forty Nine when I I retweeted it. But basically, a whole tweet thread about his experience on the show. It's a great it's a great mm. read. I think I did miss that. I'm going to go back check it out. Yeah, just a side note, like <clears throat> having started to follow the Lodge Forty Nine hashtag on Instagram, it's great to see all that kind of maybe minor is it. I don't mean that as an insulting word, but people who, who have filled all kinds of roles, small and large on the show, are just like super into promoting the fact that they've been on it and they're all just so praise, full of praise for everyone involved with it and just the experience that they've had. It's cool. Yeah, it's almost like they all realize what a gem they, you know, that was in their midst. I mean, I'm sure they're going on auditions all the time and <clears throat> maybe reading for parts that they may not always like. And I mean, this is kind of like a job of a lifetime in some ways, but it does, it does seem the way that they praise it particularly seems like that's even the set. I mean, all from all angles, you know, from the producers, they're always mm-hmm. talking, they're always like tipping their cap to all the whole crew. And so, it, yeah, you do definitely get this picture that it's just kind of like a, a, like a joy to be on set there. So anyway, we're at the, um, the bidding uh, starts with a, uh, the, $300,000 item and it goes through a bunch of things before we get to the bolt Larry's bowling bag um, the Lynx Lodge Larry Loomer LL on the bag and it goes on the market for 200 bucks they make a bid for it and it's going you know try 201 then and then all of a sudden it's about to go it's like going once going twice and of course there's a an anonymous bidder that bids it up to 500,000 and then kind of like all hell breaks loose. And then, you know, so they're all kind of fighting over it. It looks like Janet's about to be taken away by the federales and, um, the, the muse Genevieve gets up on stage and starts singing and, um, quiets the whole crowd, soothes the savage beast, does this wonderful performance uh, the mariachi band joins in at the end, and Jim, you know, talking about crying. I mean, in the scene, people are crying at that, you know, like, and yeah. there, there was like a like a real beautiful nature to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, she lights it on fire at the end, which I just thought was brilliant. You know, I didn't really see it coming. You know, everybody's swept up in it, and it provides this awesome moment for Ernie to like. I mean, he looks like it's like a running back out there. He just sort of like takes the moment. Gets down, runs up, grabs a bag, jumps through that ring of fire that I think we've seen prophesied in the in the paintings uh, all summer, all uh, season long, and uh, takes off. And then that starts a chase. So we've got uh, Farrell Higgins and his crew coming after them. They're all running. Scott is really pumped up. You know, everybody's real excited and uh, running for the hills, basically, with the exception of Lamar, who's kind of like out of breath. <laughs> Looks like he's about to have a heart attack, or maybe <laughs> two two invalids, Dud in his leg, and Lamar and his uh, general out of shapeness. I love when he calls time out when Mets calls time. Yeah, yeah, out. yeah. At the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> and speaking of Dud, by the way, when the when Daffy fires the gun in the beginning, Dud, I only noticed this the second time around, but Dud sort of like he he becomes like immediately Secret Service to Lamar. You know, like he's he's been doing this a lot during the season where he kind of like jumps in because he's the squire and he's there to protect people. Mm-hmm. But with Elmarvin Metz, it's almost like he's the president. So he kind of gets, he jumps on top of him <laughs> in this like pose, like, like he's, the president is under threat, which I thought was really funny, which also, which is when Ernie, yeah. Ernie and Dud's unflappable admiration <laughs> for Metz is a, a great bit the, up until the, until the plane. Yeah, I think, it's I think, hilarious. yeah, right. <laughs> when they're out. 
like definitely yeah. Dud is getting a little bit more aware, you know, after the yeah. bet, after so, he loses the bet. So, and really, it, uh, really briefly, the one thing I noticed on my rewatch that I hadn't noticed the first time was when Daphne shoots the gun and they're all jumping on the ground, ducking like, oh shit, you know, Lamar shits himself. In the background, Genevieve is just standing there against the van, casually smoking. She's unflapped, un- unflappable, unfazed. That's funny. I didn't even notice that yet, but that makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, I didn't notice it the first time. The second time, it's like, you know what? She's just chill, not worried about it. And then she's the first one in to Lodge 55 once they get the gun out of Daphne's hand. Mm. Which maybe is, you know, an indication of, like, later how she's going to take charge and and uh, help to make things happen in the way she does. Yeah, creating the disturbance uh, was key. And yeah, and so and so they get it, and when they open up the bag, the, the, the bowling bag, and find the scrolls in there, the, the look on Blaze's face is just totally priceless as he's kind of like, he's now holding them in his hands. And then for a brief moment, you think it's all going to come crashing down. All, like, you know, reality's going to set in. This is Lodge 49. These people's lives are unspectacular. And, and their, own, their uh, enjoyment of life is usually fleeting. Um, but no, he just grabs the bag. He has no idea. He doesn't really notice that they're, that they're holding the scrolls. And I thought, you know, I guess why would he, in a sense? Um, except for that the bag is open. So he does seem kind of like a doofus for that. Um, so then, yeah, so then they all, and so they're all happy. They got to win for once. They've got the scrolls. And I think that it, like the other thing that we kind of learned throughout the whole episode is that they've kind of come to terms with the fact that like the scrolls don't mean anything. Basically like the idea being that if you put your hopes in something to be like a magic clear all for your problems, it's, is bad news. You know, Scott with his, his, uh, I mean, sorry, Blaze with his mental health, even, you know, like to a very large degree, but even Daphne says it. She's like, I'm not interested except for getting those scrolls is our destiny. And uh, so, yeah, and then they have it. All right, so, sure. So with scrolls in hand and Janet Frog marched out by the, it looks like at that point, the FBI, or a combination of Federales and FBI, we kind of get a little bit of a denouement and everyone kind of going on their separate ways. Uh, we get Ernie, Dud, Metz, and... Uh, and what's the lawyer's name again? You just said it. What's her name? Daphne. Oh, Daphne. Daphne. Not really all a lawyer. taking. Yeah, not the non-lawyer. Yeah. Taking the plane, plane back. Others, Tarquin and uh, Liz, hanging back to deal with Janet, and uh, we get sort of the rest of Lodge Forty Nine plus heading to the taco stand. That was, but the great thing about the end of this episode is we circle back to the flash forward cold open of season two uh, and get really all of our questions answered. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't, you know, we know all the symbolism, the mariachi suit, all that ends up having real explanations. And you get this really emotional scene of, you know, again, as you said, Bart, the squire protecting his knight, you know, grabbing hold and they do, they do the tandem jump. And at, well, we don't know where Metz is, but we get everybody else safely on the beach where at the taco stand as El Confidente painted. And we kind of get a little bit uh, in an episode of reunions and groupings and pairings. We get uh, a, a good core of our group reunited at the taco stand on the beach, uh, but lots of questions still to be answered. But I love that we get 
a really logical explanation to all those mysteries, and it clears the deck so well for episode 10, because your assumption is they're going to answer some of those things in the flash forward in episode 10, and I kind of love how this episode crescendos with all of these answers to about the airplane, which was this... Uh, you know, specter hanging over the season. Was it real? Was it not real? What's going to happen? Who's going to get out of the plane? Why are they in the plane? What's in the toilet paper bag? So we get real logical answers to all of that, setting up a really, which we can circle back to with our uh, doors open predictions, but a real kind of almost blank slate for episode 10 in a lot of ways. You know, the expectations are really... You know, we're kind of in who knows territory for what's going to happen in episode 10, which is very, very exciting. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of saying last week is that the show always sort of delivers this way. You know, it's it, it's not required to have some trick up their sleeve. It, it just sort of like p- pulls it off in this way that like it's just so gratifying to see kind of like, you know, the characters get their souls back. You know, it's just the way that Ernie just didn't even need to think and he grabs it and goes for the run and the redemption of Scott, like you're saying, that that is like sort of the payoff and they do it in a nice artful way that's still fun and pleasant to watch. Um, but it doesn't require like some tremendous sort of reveal. Let me ask you guys something. What do you think about the fact that El Confidente was not in this episode at all? I kind of missed him. I th- yeah, I was very much expecting him to be there. I was kind of bummed when he wasn't. And then I think, I don't know, I I, he, I, I guess he's on his way to die. Like he knows he's going to die somehow. Maybe, yeah. Like, did he just like already fulfill his role? He made the paintings. He set everything in motion. He made sure everyone would inspired everyone to, to on the right path so that they would end up together, and then he didn't need to be there. Chris, what do you think? Because I also thought like he would now find out that he was his uh, prediction that El Marvin Metz was a lodge member was right. Like that was one of the things I was looking forward to. That's true. Yeah. Like links. Yeah. Well, I I think it's one of those things. It's a it leaves a really interesting. I actually have no idea. I don't even have a very good like. Uh, prediction guess on that one but what i do think is exciting is it gives us a you know one of those kind of cool questions into this episode 10 you know so this episode 10 really is kind of clean slate right now there's also some sort of big questions on that clean slate that are that are still out there and i think where what role will we ever see again uh el confidente is definitely a, a big one I mean, he was definitely a presence in this entire episode, right? So I, I think it would be we'd be it would be strange for us not to get some. I'm not saying conclusion by any stretch, but I think he was such a silent character in this episode that we're going to hear we'll, we'll hear, learn, or see more going forward. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was almost like a wake for him or something, you know, like the part after the funeral, after the sadness, when you can kind of loosen up, have a couple drinks, and enjoy yourself and remember the person in a positive way and tells funny stories or something, you know, like they all seem to have that kind of energy, wake energy. Yeah, but who knows? Yeah. He might pop up again. I, I think he's still alive. Yeah. I, I think... Well, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. She said he was leaving and he, she said something about going to see his wife and so that's that's the only reason. I mean, yeah. could be anything. He could be going to her grave. Plus, I mean, I think a big part of the message from his wife was go out and enjoy yourself, live life, da 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 So we didn't really get any indication that he was anywhere near the end of his life. No, he wasn't. He didn't seem like in wrap up mode, and and we have not, nor will we look at IMDb to peek to see if Cheech Marin is listed in episode ten. Right. 
we will let the mysteries be, so to speak. So we wanted to talk about one thing that we, we sort of skirted around in all of these recaps and our hot takes, but which we all three are super excited to talk about was, and Bart, you hinted at it, is just how fun this episode was. But not only was it fun, it almost it felt almost like a bottle episode. There were so many special features, and there were so many... They were having so much fun with these different tropes and styles of, you know, in TV and movies and, and storytelling, both from the plotting, the visuals, how it looked, how it felt. You know, it's really kind of a false contrivance to get all these characters together. I mean, we obviously have lots of groupings, but this was really like all a majority of the major characters in one scene. And we'll 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 dive into this but there is so many little homages and allusions to different kinds of genres and and uh storytelling techniques and so the one that i just tickled me was it felt like you know happy days goes to hawaii and the famous jump the shark which is now tv lore at multiple levels uh brady bunch and the the tainted tainted idol the surfing god idol whatever but, you know, when shows kind of take their cast members, put them on vacation, or take take all of them and put them in some strange locale and hilarity ensues. It's like from, from uh, lot, that, uh, on, the, on the set, they're going from, like, lot 7 to lot, like, 13 or yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And so, and that was just one of them. We could, we'll probably sit here and banty about a few a few more, but I was like, wow, I'm watching, like, I'm. it's so cool. I'm. We're watching, like... A very special episode of Lodge Forty Nine, like it had that kind yeah. of eventy episode. Episode when that vibe. Brady Bunch episode would air, like once a year, like if we were in the back, like you know, the family that we played with down the street, you know, like we'd be playing kickball in the backyard or something, and someone would be like, "The Brady Bunch are in Hawaii," and it was like, "Oh, we all knew that this was the one time a year that we'd get to see it," and we'd because it, it was, it was like a special event. It wasn't just like any old. Brady Bunch. Uh, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that episode affected me a lot as a kid. It was scary. Right. There was like a tiki thing. Was that the one with the tarantula? Yeah, it had um, Vincent Price was on it. Oh. Yeah, there was like, and he was lost in the maze and he got bit by the spider or something. You know, it was all about that, yeah, that that little doll that was turned out to be sort of evil or whatever. But yeah, it, it, like the Brady Bunch <laughs> was like, oh, about brothers and sisters. And then all of a sudden there was like a scary one, you know. It was a, very, it was a special event, yeah. you know. Lodge 49, also about brothers and sisters. Exactly. And that really was just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many of these little little pieces in here. Like, it was a little bit like a zany comedy. I mean, this was by far the most straight-up comedic episode of Lodge 49 that probably has existed. Um, not that they aren't all funny or have funny moments, but this one had the beats. It had the the even the look and feel. Like, it felt like a comedy in all the ways that, that a director and a writer and the actors can signal that difference. Yeah. And like we were also talking about, it's a bad, mad, mad, mad world and Cannibal Run, all those like kind of crazy movies around that same time period. A lot of big stars running around, being goofy, maybe staying in the same hotel, maybe sli- maybe swimming in the same pool. Yeah. Yeah, and right. I had some like, it had some like love boat vibes and those other mm-hmm. kind of, those kind of anthology shows where we get these like rotating stories. Even like Scott and the Muse, like that felt like, you know, love. <laughs> yeah. Exciting and new, you know, like oh, yeah. they saw them on the the Lido deck or yeah. whatever. Like we have no idea, but we're gonna spend the next forty minutes like with these people, like as star-crossed lovers that were just introduced by you know the bartender like two minutes ago. Right. So the one secret thing we're not sure about where it's gonna go is that who was the five hundred thousand dollar bidder 
to me, I, I feel like the guy who works at Ludibrium, who's the intern who Liz runs into, is the key to that. Like, he's working for that person, whoever it is. And it's the same people who are going to try to buy Orbis and drill underneath it, whatever. <clears throat> I also had a brief flashback to Bart, your early prediction that that guy would be a love interest for Liz in this season. I know. I felt... Remember, she was working for Dr. Kimbrough and he was in the next office. And you're like, I think that's something's going to happen with them. And for a moment in this episode, it almost seemed like that. Like, like I was going to oh, get redeemed. And they kind of... Yeah, yeah. I, I totally. <laughs> and he ran away. I think you even kind of you got half redeemed. I think because they were flirting until he had to vanish. Yeah, because right? like, soon as Dodd and Ernie showed up, he was like, "Oh shit, I got to get out of here." Those guys, you know, which is a total love boat trope as well. Like you know, maybe like this convict who had to jumped on and like has to like, like run in and out and is like falling in love and in between. <laughs> I give you a half win, Bart, and I wouldn't even be surprised if I don't know. You who may knows? even get the full win, like in season three. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, who knows? Like, she had that boyfriend earlier on in the season that seems like sometimes she can like deal with um, people who can not necessarily be her. Yeah, I mean, he was just an FB. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she make she could maybe have that with this guy too. You know. So, oh, but I do want to acknowledge I was wrong about my prediction about Ernie not really being in a mariachi suit and that that was maybe just just Elf Confidante's dream. So I was super wrong about that. That mariachi did suit did happen and it was glorious. But I was partially right. I will say at some point in one of our episodes, not in an official prediction, that I suggested that it might not be Janet in the globe head suit. And it wasn't. It was Daphne. So I can, like, claim partial redemption there. Yeah, that was a good call. It feels like the cashing in of chips, right? Like, because <laughs> there's so many things wrapped up or so many answers to many mysteries or whatever <laughs> that, like, this episode is like almost like uh, we can go around, like, count up our wins and losses just because yeah. so many things came to some kind of definitive conclusion in this episode. That's, again, another reason why it felt like kind of a traditional TV show or even movie tropes is, like, things had conclusions, you know? The story, the A, B, and C plot lines are wrapped up by the end of the uh, end of Law and Order or, you know, at the end of the rom-com or at the Fantasy end of the Island. movie. Yeah, totally. They're leaving the boat or the island and, like, saying, you know, we're going to get together again or... You know, we've got Mary, you know, whatever those exit interviews are in those kind of shows, it had those those kind of qualities, even the like regrouping on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Also that, yeah, the beach thing was reminiscent for me a tiny bit. And maybe I'm off base here because I haven't actually seen this movie in a long time. But the whole thing of like, oh, there's this taco stand and it's on a beautiful beach and you're going to get there. It was remember in E2 Mama Tambien? where they're, like, dreaming of this beach, this ideal beach, and then that's where they end up in the end. And, like, for some reason, that came to mind for me. I mean, because it's in Mexico. but mm, Right. Um, well, then they have a three-way in tacos. They do have a, a, a threesome, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing for me, you know, I'm always looking for, like, angles and trying to do research and trying to find some, like, uh, reference thing to talk about in our episodes. This, But like you're saying, like this one was just kind of fun. But the one thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to go try to see if there's any parallels here was with the auction. And there's certainly a lot of movies and TV shows over time that have employed auction scenes. But one of my very favorite, like top four movies of all time is North by Northwest, which has a very pivotal auction scene in it. And so I went back this afternoon and rewatched that and uh the only thing i could find that was obvious was that in that in north by northwest one of the people who wins one of the bids of an item the auction where Cary grant is is uh named mr stone so that was like tom stone lamar's character in his books but the other thing is that like it ends with a big distraction and a big to-do and a big hullabaloo 
as this one did as well. The writer who does the weekly recaps in the Onion AV Club of Lodge 49, Jim, mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe it's a, a, a woman. She does an excellent job. They're always A, A minus, A plus. She really does, or the writer does love the show. But the writer mentions a similar thing about that they're like a, a weird fan of auction scenes and TV okay. and movies and that, and that this one shot to the top, very top of their list uh, of uh, yeah. auction scenes. I mean, this one was incredible. We, ha- we can say it again because Paul F. Tompkins was just brilliant. When he goes, this is the Finland affair all or, over uh, again. Helsinki, or, yeah, Helsinki all over again. <laughs> Helsinki, yeah, yeah. right? Here. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> And 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 cutting to the the one eyed man for to wipe away his one eyed tear <laughs> right, after right, the song. Right. <laughs> so many this there was I don't I, I mean I've said this a minute ago but I really did like guffaw laugh in ways that I don't generally to the show and that's not to say it's not funny in other ways but this one like so many times like you know the kind of like involuntary laughter inducing moments yeah and just for Ernie. You know, we've had so many just moments and whole episodes this season where Ernie seems so down. It seems like he's trying as best he can to, to you know, his life is good, you know, but it, it isn't. And it's he's having a hard time. He's trying to put a positive spin on things. And just to see him just grab that moment and jump through that flaming gap in the tapestry is just like, wow, you know, just this huge victory for him. That for me that was a, that was a special moment. I also thought it was really significant that it was Ernie too, because he's the one that's kind of been downplaying all the mysteries and sort of telling everybody, warning people against things, you know, like getting too involved with them, and yet it's him mm-hmm. who, like, w- when we think the they're they're like slipping from our clutches, he just finds purpose and uh, runs up and grabs them. And then even though they have to return the bag, they get the scrolls, which is all they wanted anyway. Though it would have been great to have Larry's bag back. It's a handsome bag. Yeah, I love that bag. But also Scott, too. Like, Ernie goes and runs with it. And then Scott, who has also been, you know, has also, like, poo-pooed the scrolls and the magic and the mysteries. Yeah. He's right in there running interference and tackling some dude. Yeah. And he's all in, you know, with it. So that was great, too. Scott. Blocking and tackling, and that chase scene is 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 something to behold. One last reference that's a little bit more subtle that Jim you you brought up that I also had was when uh, when they tie up what's his face, what's his oh, name, um, Anil, Anil, yeah, yeah, and that is right out of nine to five. <laughs> yeah, like you yeah. Can almost see Lily Tomlin. Was that Dabney and, Coleman? Was he the boss in that movie? Yeah, yeah. Dabney Coleman was the boss. Uh, I mean, it's three women in there, but that even the tableau of the two of them. And the other one. I definitely got a vibe of is Thelma and Louise during, you know, their their team up had a real So sure. I was thinking nine to five and Thelma Thelma and Louise with their storyline the whole time. Yeah. All right. Well, we loved it. It was madcap. It was fun. There was still all the things that we love, but it definitely felt like a very special episode of Lodge Forty Nine. <laughs> um which I just think that the 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 production team just had a lot of fun and that just came through huge. But it is that time for our Alchemist of the Week. Jim, again, as someone who's not had a chance to name their Alchemist of the Week for a few episodes in a row, drop it on us. Yeah, so I didn't give this a huge amount of thought beforehand, but just sort of off the top of my head, I think I'm going to say Daphne. Hmm. Because she came in, I mean, it could be almost anybody, but she came in, you know, it's maybe partially because of, or a lot because of what happens early in the episode where you learn her change of heart, that she 
as long as it's genuine, which it seems to be. She came into this like, I want to try to get rich. There's this Bitcoin angle. And then she got converted by El Confidente into being like a true believer and kind of letting that stuff go. And we know, you know, she's a college professor. She's a historian. She's a real genuine person. She has, you know, values that maybe don't align with someone who would be totally focused on the money angle to begin with. So it fits. And it's, I don't know. I just felt like she went along with everybody and she um, she's sovereign protector of Lodge 55. Well, in many ways, she... Anna? She, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go she, ahead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she, I think, kind of tries to do the right thing. And it's not until she gets into tremendous debt um, that she kind of decides to go chasing the Bitcoin. Right. And now that she's down mm-hmm. there and she took, you know, when they, they have that uh, circle of thanks, she says, uh, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got into, a, uh, you know, into a van with a stranger and drove to Mexico. It was mm-hmm. the greatest thing I ever did, you know. And so, yeah, yeah, she's and she kind of sets everything in motion here. But she knows where the scrolls are and she's the conduit for the rest of the adventures, you know. So I don't know. I I don't know that that. You know, I could have picked several people, I suppose, as Alchemist of the Week, but for me, she she stood out there as somebody who I could relate to, who was maybe a little misguided, and then it was like, you know what, I'm all in for the right reasons. Love it. The transformative power of Daphne in this episode. All right, Bart, who was your Alchemist of the Week? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm going with Genevieve, the muse. Um, even before I realized that she was standing at the... At the um, van unfazed when the gun was going off i didn't even notice that but i just thought that she had a real presence in this episode all over it um you know a speaking uh language that nobody else is speaking and also just you know hardly even saying anything at all i really love when she kind of like pats the mattress when after scott's trying to explain to her how he can't break his vows and all this stuff and she's just like "Uh uh-huh and then she just like taps it it's really um, I don't know. I was just really kind of smitten by that whole scene. Um, but yeah, that, that scene where she just belts out that tune and gets everybody's attention, gets everybody stopped fighting for that one moment was just so beautiful. And then whatever decision, how she came to it or whether she knows or if she's even trying to, to like help them get the scrolls or she just loves playing with that Zippo she's been playing around with the whole time. That diversion of lighting the fire is ultimately what leads to the scrolls. And so, um, you know, and I think in some ways she kind of also like sort of frees herself from, from Elmarvin Metz. She's got like a, you know, she doesn't need to be anybody's muse. She can, you know, she can choose her own destiny. She's going for Scott. She just had a very strong pulse throughout the whole episode and um just for that reason i mean i mean she does kind of lead to them getting the scrolls in a very um uh literal way but at the same time i just thought that she was just had a huge presence in the show throughout and even though she just kind of is like peppered along the way and is speaking french but yeah just i guess that that scene alone was just such my favorite scene in, of the show so yeah genevieve all right i'm going I'm going a little bit odd. Well, we'll see. I'm going with Elmarvin Metz as my alchemist of the week. Uh, you could say, you know, he obviously had his own transformational moment with his ten, you know, ten year uh, orgasm. But I loved the appreciation scenes before dinner. 
And I think I've talked about or hinted at in, the pa- in past episodes that one of the reasons I'm so tickled by a lot of the, like, skewering of, like, workshops and Silicon Valley and all of that is because, you know, I've been on various versions of a good amount of those. And the ones that I like and then I, I've run myself and blah, 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 a core value of that is sharing of and acknowledging of appreciations, which is actually a very powerful thing to bring people together. That's not even cheesy. That's actually a very Lodge 49 thing. It's not about, like, the sage on the stage. It's about people sharing, you know, in, in collaboration. So when he did that and tra- and allowed everyone to say their piece, was had some great bits, everything from Tarquin's, you know, opt-out to, you know, the kind of various reasons... But it set the tone. It was such a powerful scene. And so I've used that as a facilitator in running those kind of sessions. And so to see Mets do that and really kind of bring that circle together, because that's what it does, right? It does. It is the fellowship of the ring. And everyone is sharing something about why they're there at that moment around a, a literal round table sharing a meal for the adventures to come. So um, I almost feel like that moment... And how he held the space for everyone to name something about why they're there at that moment was a was a really uh, powerful inflection moment for the characters and for the propulsion of the plot. So with that, uh, I'll give it to him. I'm a little bit bummed out that you know his ultimate selfishness won out in the plane, and be curious to see what you know. He's the one character in the plane we don't we have not caught up with uh, post parachute jump, but he is my alchemist. Of the week. All right. All right. Now we're in odd territory here because we've kind of cashed in and admitted a lot of our predictions. Our doors that have opened have been slammed shut. And we we talked about how we really have a lot of things that could happen in this episode. We're kind of out on a limb. So do you all have brave predictions about this 10th episode of season two? Yes, I do. I have... Go for it. I have a couple. I think for... Well, geez, I don't even know where to start. All right, I'm going to start with uh, uh, Lamar, uh, Marvin Metz. He, I think he is going to... I See, I'm trying to debate with myself whether or not... Uh, or trying to decide whether or not I think he's going to actually be dead or he's just going to use this as a chance to fake his death. But I think he's going to go missing in Mexico... Um, since we just see his t- the typewriter, but we don't see him. We don't know what's happened to him. Boost his book sales. It'll boost his book sales. And then that would go back into my other prediction, which is that he'll get back into writing the um, erotica, which we, when he takes that turn, he'll have a much healthier life. Maybe he settles down with Clara, and he starts writing that erotica and kind of like breaks that spell that he's under. That's kind of that prediction. And then I also, I think, you know, episode 10, there's going to be some sort of funeral, some sort of death, some sort of something or whatever. So I can kind of see that maybe. And then I also think that Scott is going to offer the Sovereign Protector to Ernie, back to Ernie, since he's kind of getting over all that stuff. He's going to go ahead and offer it back to Ernie. And then I think Ernie's going to decline and Blaze will pick it up, which ties back into, I already made that prediction. Actually, and also you mentioned which I wasn't. I was hoping someone else would bring up, but I'll go ahead and bring it up. But what are those dragons doing in that painting yeah. on the lodge? And does the, burning down does, the lodge? Does the lodge burn down? My my silliest prediction of the year has 
is breathing some life. There's a little bit of a possibility in there. But that's what I see. I see a sort of staged funeral for L. Marvin Metz, and then I see the sovereign protectorship in Blaze's hands at the end. All right. Interesting. Jim, what doors are opening for you? Okay. So, you know, I don't love to make predictions, and I'm not very good at them, but there's one thing that we haven't addressed that's open that has to somehow play out is that that painting of Dud and Liz where she says, like, we look like mimes in space. Like, they're wearing black, the stars are behind them. That's got to somehow come true, right, as everything else has. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it is. But it's something we're going to see, right? Is it like those are wetsuits and they're in the water and the sky's behind them? Or I don't know. Hmm. I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, swimming at night is definitely a thing, right? Yeah. And maybe the scrolls will lead them to like, oh, there's something underwater. I don't know. I thought it was the fact that they met each other underwater. Like I thought that it had sort of was something he had predicted and that it had come true. It was during the day and it looks like it's at night. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that's going to be something in episode 10. Like that's, that's like my wimpy, like obvious prediction, like prediction of a wimpy kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have gotten the paintings have turned out to be very predictive and very literal. So I think one, I think I, I love that both of you cited things that we've seen in paintings that we haven't seen in the show yet. So that's a great, there's a great kernel there. I'm going to take a bit of a meta cop out. And I'm not going to, because I really, I'm drawing a blank for 10, which actually has me kind of excited. But my meta prediction, my doors that are opening, I've hinted at it in the past. The next episode, the 10th and final of season two, will not be the final season of Lodge 49. And that soon we will hear that they have greenlit a third and final season of the show. Hope so. So that that is my prediction. We may not know it yet, but I predict that the next episode we watch will not be the final series finale of Lodge 49. I hope you're uh, right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, everyone's rooting for me, so that's maybe that's a <laughs> me being kind of <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh we're going to have to wrap this one up, but I just want to say we will be, we have very special guests. We'll be, uh, we're lining up a bunch of interviews hopefully over the next couple of weeks and we'll be sharing more of our off season plans, but we will be interviewing showrunners, Peter Ako and Jim Gavin this week for airing after the 10th and final season of episode two. Um, so we're very excited. We'll be interviewing them. We, we are thrilled beyond belief. So that is something for everyone to look forward to. And with that, we'll see you at band night.